0: On this episode of Startup the Science.
1: With materials analysis, what we're really looking at are how the material is going to perform. You know, whether you're looking at the composition of the material, whether you're looking at its different characteristics under different stresses, fundamentally, what we're trying to get at is what can we use that material for and how will it perform in its end application.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to another Coffee Break with Experts episode. On this episode, we sat down with three different experts in the field of materials analysis and asked them about its importance, the current trends, and what the future looks like in this area. So with that being said, let's meet our experts.
2: My name is um, Thorsten Kampen and uh, by training and education, I'm a physicist. I have a physics degree and habilitation in uh, in surface science and semiconductor surface science. Right now, I'm working at Specs. This is a company specialized in surface analysis, especially in surface analysis on, on a nanometer scale. And we are using a technology which is based on, on the Nobel Prize of Albert Einstein. So, this is the outer photo effect. So, we use photons in the ultraviolet and X ray regime and excite electrons. And we do all a lot of interesting thing with those electrons. We do electron microscopy, we do spectroscopy for chemical analysis. Yeah, and uh, based on that, we are building and developing a lot of interesting and cool tools for basic research on one hand, but also for the industry, for example, for the semiconductor industry. And besides that, which keeps me um, quite busy, I'm a lecturer at the Technical University, and I'm also a mentor in the ENA network.
1: My name is Alex Reed. I am the co-founder and CEO of Fluence Analytics. Uh, we're a, a startup based in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and we develop hardware software systems that help polymer producers improve the quality and efficiency of their processes by using real time process analytics. And using that data, our customers can save millions of dollars a year per production line. So as far as this podcast goes, what's relevant is that we provide measurement systems combined with uh, complex software to, uh, to do these material analyses in real time during production. I'm not a scientist by training, but I've been around them for a very long time. Uh, As as an entrepreneur, uh, working with a team of engineers and scientists to develop this technology, which spun out of the university, that's been my, my background, is kind of bridging the commercial and the technical.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Linda Skipper. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Lincoln, which is based in the United Kingdom. I teach a range of undergraduate and postgraduate students as part of our heritage conservation study programmes. I'm a conservator and I'm a heritage scientist. The research area that I'm particularly interested in is looking at the composition of pigments and paint. And that includes researching historic interiors and things like wallpaper. And I've also done some work on biodeterioration, which is how bacteria damage surfaces in this particular area. Um, And I also support our students with a really wide range of different research projects in conservation using all sorts of different analysis techniques to do that process.
0: So as you can see, our experts bring three very different perspectives to this topic. And the first question I asked our experts was, why is materials analysis important?
2: Once you have found either by chance or by by research, a certain kind of material or group of materials, you would like to know more about it, about its physical properties this could be just mechanical properties like strength how you could improve that it could be also chemical properties properties like chemical resistance for example in terms of corrosion but also in terms of catalysis so that's uh, what what material analysis is, is about yeah and then you try to improve that either by improving the 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 physical properties of the material. For example, if you think about semiconductor materials like elemental semiconductors like silicon, for example, the charge transfer, Properties, so how electrons, how current is passing through the material depends on the quality of this of, of the silicon, so on the crystallinity, how many defects are in the in, in, in the crystal. So the less defects are in the silicon crystal in the silicon wafer, the better is the are the charge transfer properties. So and this is what material analysis is about. So you are also developing tools and then. Well, it's a, a sort of a trial and error process in one sense, yeah? So you try to improve the the way you create or general or grow the, the material, and then you use different kind of tools. I said this is a trial and error process. On the other hand, you're also applying science to it, yeah? So there's a theoretical part of material analysis where you try to evolve uh, models or some kind of description of your material you are interested in, and also a model which describes the, the properties. So, and with this kind of models, you try to find, on one hand, a quantitative tool, for example, a forecast. Yeah? And then it's an interplay be- between the theoretical part using the theoretical models and then the experimental part creating, growing the material and doing um, the analysis. And then it's, it's, it's a continuous process. You know? So you try to use these experimental and theoretical tools to just improve the, the properties you're interested in.
1: Materials analysis, I'd say, is very important in a number of different ways. I think some of the key things that we have to remember about it is that with materials analysis, what we're really looking at are how the material is going to perform. You know, whether you're looking at the composition of the material, whether you're looking at its different characteristics under different stresses, really what you're fundamentally what we're trying to get at is what can we use that material for and how will it perform in its end application? And so I would say it's it's vital as we continue to push materials into all kinds of different areas of our modern life especially as we iterate them, we make them lighter, we make them stronger, being able to confirm and understand that all these little tweaks that we're making actually preserve what the materials intended uses or even enhance it is exactly what we can get out of the materials analysis. So very, very important to enable uh, this entire field and, and it's, it's only growing and growing at a very fast pace.
3: There's a lot of different reasons for this so I'm, I'm going to talk about a few examples so generically in conservation of cultural heritage before you take any part in any kind of conservation treatments on an object you have to really understand what it is that you're working with what it's what it's made from um, and what it, materials analysis can tell you some really interesting things one example um, there there's a summer project that I did with a an undergraduate student and there was a load of containers that were in historic property in an outhouse and it had unknown liquids in these containers and they didn't know what what they were whether it was safe to keep them on display because the containers were starting to deteriorate and leak and they needed to actually know what was in there before they were able to make any choices about what to keep what to dispose of um, whether the contents needed to be removed and maybe a, a replica solution of the same color could go in so it still looked the same but maybe was a bit less potentially toxic so we did some analysis around that trying to find out what exactly they were broadly sort of analysis can tell you about material culture of objects so history and and use of the item I have a colleague who works on identification of glass and some of her research looks at what glass found in different areas can tell you about the trade routes and where that glass has come from. So it tells you a bit of a story about the people who were there and and who used it. And also, you, you don't have to use really expensive analytical equipment to get some interesting information. There's a practical that I did with our conservation students last week looking at the types of salts that you find in buildings so they took a a salt sample from a building and carried out a range of just spot tests really to see what sort of salts there were and that helps with understanding what the environment is around the building and whether it might have been exposed to pollution or fertilizer so it can be really broad, but it's certainly not something that's a standalone approach. It's very much sort of integrated with the analysis and looking at the objects and if there's any archival sources or other literature. And you put them all together to build a picture that tells a story about that object and its history and helps you to make decisions about it going forwards.
0: And if you're sitting there wondering what in the world did they find in those containers in her first example, don't worry, I asked her and here's what she said.
3: It was a mixture, but there was an awful lot of white spirit and diesel. (laughs) Uh, It certainly wasn't what was on the containers. And there were a few very toxic pesticides that are now banned, which had to be disposed of. You couldn't safely say that you could treat it and remove any traces of the pesticide. So some of those, unfortunately, couldn't be kept. But of course, at least you could document them so that you knew what was there uh, before they had to go.
0: How cool is that? Now on to the next question, which was, what are the current trends in materials analysis? Here's what they had to say.
2: So let me focus on what we do at SPACs. I mentioned before that we use photoelectron spectroscopy or microscopy to uh, do material analysis. The way it works is that you have a certain kind of light source, for example, an X-ray source, and then those X-rays are directed onto the sample surface, and they excite electrons. It's one of the most surface-sensitive techniques. About 60% of the um, information we get is coming from the first atomic layer of the surface. So in this sense, it's a technique for analyzing the surface properties of a certain material. Why is this so interesting? It's interesting because most of the physical mechanisms, for example, in a semiconductor chip, in a microchip, are physical mechanisms which work at the surface or at the interface. So right at the interface Of the two, three, four atomic layers uh, where two different materials, for example, meet. So what I explained is actually what's happening in real life. So when the materials are at work, so do their task. Until a couple of years ago, the technologies where we're developing the pure surface science, so we couldn't do the measurements under the working conditions of a catalyst, for example. So it was always bond to the fact that the materials we were analyzing and uh, the techniques we were using were bond to having ultra high vacuum. This is a vacuum or an atmosphere which is comparable to the atmosphere right between Earth and Moon. So it's it's a very it's already very good vacuum. So and we have overcome this problem by just improving our technologies. So now Nowadays, we can use uh, our photo emission microscopy and spectroscopy tools at pressures not 10 to the minus 7 millibar, but close to atmospheric conditions. So we have approached 100 millibar. What's so important about the 100 millibar? So we are above the vapor pressure of water, which means we can analyze any kind of material. So we are not born to... Um, noble metals or, or, or semiconductors. So, with our machines, we can put a pot of coffee into the machine and just analyze the amount of aromatic oils on the surface of a coffee. So we can look into a hydrogen fuel cell while the cell is operating. We can look into a battery between the, 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 the acid and the electrode and see what happens at this interface between the, at this liquid metal interface right when the battery is actually doing its task, providing a voltage and a current to, I don't know to, to a light or some, some, some other thing. And that's, I think, it's a current trend. Yeah, Get your analytical tools into the real world application that you can do material analysis while the material is actually operated under real conditions.
1: A n- number of things we're seeing are related mainly to use of large data sets. So th- there's quite a bit of work being done in pulling and aggregating data from a number of different sources around material properties, you have different types of synthetic routes. So, I mean, everything from the discovery materials all the way through to maybe even the analysis of materials. And what we're seeing is is tr- people trying to build these fairly complex artificial intelligence systems that will be able to do a lot of discovery and analysis without actually having to perform experiments. Um, so, th- I mean, this is obviously a very exciting trend, um, especially you know, for a company like ours, where we if we think we can provide some of that data uh, into some of these databases and then leverage, you know, the context around it, uh, that could be very, very exciting for us. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the bigger ones. Obviously, we're still, you know, you're still seeing a lot. And by the way, that's not going to replace a lot of things that we're seeing in the, in the near term. I think that's more of a longer term thing. But um, some of the other things we're seeing, I mean, there's always efforts to, use different types of measurements, improve sensitivity, so uh, just improve performance. So there's a lot of work being done on making the use, the, the current ways we characterize and analyze materials better. Uh, so that trend of, of just seeing you know, cheaper, a, as the cost of a lot of the enabling technologies comes down, uh, you're seeing a lot more opportunity to apply analysis in places where it was cost prohibitive in the past. I'd say that trend is only going to accelerate. I mean there's, there, there are apps out there where I think you can do uh, spectroscopy on your phone, and so you know that's just an example. you go handheld, you go full you know full scale, uh, you might start seeing that everywhere in the world.
3: Well, I think very broadly, it's actually looking a bit more more bigger picture um, because obviously materials analysis is quite a specialist skill set and it's quite a lot of investment in the, certainly the high-end analytical equipment um, and knowing how you then interpret any data you get. Again, you need quite a lot of experience and training to be able to do that accurately. And that kind of thing is completely out of reach for small organisations. You know, they might need access to some analysis on occasion, but it's not something they can invest in heavily to, to get themselves set up. So they don't necessarily know how to how to access it, and yeah, even across larger organisations like as we have at the University of Lincoln, we work collaboratively with our science department and our engineering department to sort of facilitate access internally around our equipment. But there's you know there's a much bigger picture to start thinking about how other organizations can more easily access the the tools that are available at universities or the the larger organizations and also thinking more broadly across the country and even internationally you know what actually is out there what are the skill sets that people can share and to think more about how materials analysis can be done more collaboratively to make the best use of what we've got and certainly that's that kind of mechanism is part of some of the things that some of the grant funding bodies certainly in the UK um, and in Europe are starting to think about now is there isn't really any research or at least not much research about you know bringing together what is out there at all of the institutions and how think then thinking about how access can happen to that kind of equipment
0: So lots of different answers for that question, which ranged from technical advancements all the way to knowledge sharing. There is some overlap here with our previous episode with Jahan Ragai, who also mentioned that knowledge sharing was essential in this field. So if this piqued your interest, have a listen to that episode next, if you haven't already.
4: We'll get right back to the episode, but first a quick word about one of our AdmaCom sponsors. Admocom stands for the Advanced Materials Competition, and it's our two-week accelerator program for startups and advanced materials. Our friends at Sonnenberg Harrison Partnerschaft are your partner for innovation, law, and business. They offer comprehensive services and solution-oriented advice in the field of intellectual property and technology law. And first and foremost, the team at Sonnenberg Harrison think in an entrepreneurial way. For them, it's not about being right, but about ensuring the success of your company. They have a very international team of patent attorneys and technology lawyers, and their experience covers a broad spectrum of industries. We love working with them, and if you want to learn more about Sonnenberg Harrison, you can head to their website at www.sonnenbergharrison.org. We'll make sure to put that link in
0: our show notes as well. So now what? Well, my next question was basically just that. What does the future look like in this space? These were their answers
2: again i'm I'm using the expertise of of specs and where our business is focused to, to give an example. So I already mentioned that well, overcoming this pressure gap was very important, yeah, you know, to investigate materials right under the conditions where actually, they perform their task yeah, one way or the other and i think one future trend is to push it further Yeah, not just just stay at 100 millibar, but go to atmospheric pressures and that will have a huge impact uh, if we can do that we can forget about all the infrastructure so in principle we have our excitation source and the analyzer and we can we can just hold the material we are interested in in front of it and do the measurement under real conditions. And think that that will be one trend. And I can see this also in other areas, yeah? not only in this photoelectron spectroscopy area. We just talked about another application of X-ray fluorescence analysis. Yeah? This is already something which can be done under real conditions in air, but there are also trends to improve that even further. So make the device smaller without sacrificing the intensity and also the, the efficiency of the tool, the sensitivity, by making it smaller, being capable of doing analysis in more details, going where actually the action happens, if it's in a semiconductor or if it's in, in a chemical reactor. And this also means that we actually would like to investigate a chemical reaction in real time so instead of taking data on a time scale of a second so with sort of exposure times of a second we are now thinking about and we are working on detectors which are capable of doing that in a millisecond or in a microsecond so that's where where we are currently and we are just passing the millisecond to microsecond region and which means we can watch a chemical reaction in real time while Somebody else is just changing the parameters under which a reactor or whatever is working and uh, combining this with high lateral resolution because lateral resolution plays a very important role. So the structure of a catalyst on a nanometer scale is very important for its uh, functionality. So combining all those tools, being very sensitive, less evasive with the tool, bringing the analytical tools to the point of interest And doing this with a high sensitivity, a high lateral resolution, high time resolution, that's, I think, the future trend in material analysis.
1: Yeah, piggybacking on what I was just saying before on on the trends, I I just see an acceleration of a lot of these things. So, like I said, more more sensors in more places, uh, potentially being able to analyze some more complex material properties earlier in the production life cycle of these materials. Uh, so during manufacture, you know, if you had a, a number of different sensors and you built up the right t- types of correlations, you would know while you're making the material whether or not it's going to perform as expected in the intended application or even what its uh, material characteristics would be. So obviously, you know, we need a lot more sensors uh, and analyzers to be able to do that kind of thing. But I could see that as costs come down um, and the need is there, especially as we have more and more uh, unique types of materials and and you know, performance becomes even more important. Uh, that that would be one area where I could see uh, things moving pretty quickly into the future there. Um, And then yeah, the other thing I discussed before was really just that the digitization. So really going to finding some way to aggregate data across companies, universities. It's a very complex problem because there's obviously intellectual property concerns and things of that nature. But if things could be anonymized in in the right way. Uh, and you could have some kind of master database for a lot of these things that continually gets expanded from what I just mentioned, which is this whole, whole host of new sensors that are being built and put into place. And then you kind of get an exponential growth in the data uh, around these materials. So I, I could see that you know as things move forward in the future, just I think we'll be surprised by the 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 pace and there'll be some kind of escape velocity to it. Very exciting. I'd say next 10, 15 years, we're going to see some some really cool stuff.
3: I mean, certainly it sort of fits in with the previous question as well. We're seeing lots of trends around thinking about more digital techniques and particularly in the kind of current pandemic times, you, you're thinking about how people can access objects and heritage in a way which means they don't have to visit necessarily and it opens up quite a lot of angles for engagement more more internationally. You know, not everyone has the ability to visit things in person on different sides of the world. So actually, how can you sort of integrate the digital technologies with materials analysis I think is a really interesting next step because you see already, you know, 3D scans of objects and virtual tours and things like that. But actually, how can analysis feed into that and whether you can start to kind of create visual records of objects that maybe you can click on it and it brings up all of the analysis data and some interpretation around that. So people can really kind of get a full understanding of the objects and all of the the meanings and the nuances around that. Uh, And I think it can be really interesting for public engagement and for researchers as well.
0: So it looks like materials analysis is probably going digital in the future. I'm looking forward to seeing that happen, especially because seeing things on a really small scale can actually be really exciting, which is why I threw in a bonus question for this episode. I asked all of our experts to tell me what was the coolest thing they've ever seen at a super small scale. This is what they had to say.
2: Uh, Before I joined SPECT, I I had been working at the Fritz Haber Institute. And at that time, I was using tools developed by SPECT, but also by other um, companies. And I was one of the first users of a very compact and stable STM. So it's a scanning tunneling microscope. In principle, you maneuver a tip across the surface with a distance in the angstrom region yeah so it's something like one two three diameters of a single atom so and you you just go across the current you apply a small voltage one two three volts and you just measure the the current passing this gap between the sample and the tip as a function of the position and it's a quantum mechanical process it's a tunneling current okay that's the technology but why i investigated is a certain molecule and the idea was to to have molecules you could use to to assemble something like a nano switch. so they are molecules you shine light on them and then they change their outer structure their isomerization and what i've done with the micro this is stm it's a s- sort of slow motion movie but i also lowered the temperature of the surface and then i could watch how the molecules were moving across the surface and assembled to lines and smaller clusters and like this. And I could see each single molecule and within the molecules, I could see the, the orbitals of the outer electrons responsible for the chemical reaction. And that was really a very weird thing to see how molecules yeah, it's like a like a bug a small living object which is actually it's not yeah but uh, when you look at it and see how they move and self assemble on a surface yeah uh, that was really amazing uh, that was one of my key experiences that wow that's pretty cool yeah
1: i mean some of the coolest things that i've seen are more in the healthcare side i remember a, a mini pump you know, that was used in yeah you know, heart things like that i mean we're talking because we work with pumps in our system so the scale of this thing was just super tiny and just thinking about that being inside someone's body and how it would you know move uh you know our fluids around uh at such low flow rates and just the precision required in manufacturing to do something like that so I, i just think yeah in healthcare there's a ton of really miniaturized stuff out there and that's one i saw personally that was pretty cool
3: Well, I have seen lots of really amazing things, but I think the most incredible thing that I've ever seen, um, which probably comes under the heading of weird and cool, um, was using a scanning electron microscope, the really high powered magnification, to be able to actually see bacteria damaging stonework at that kind of microscopic level and to see what they were doing to it was absolutely amazing. Uh, And I'm not going to say any more about that at the moment because we we're just about to submit a publication on that which will have some fantastic pictures in Um, but it was quite incredible
0: I would personally really like to see those bacteria photos is that is that weird to admit anyways I hope you enjoyed this episode a big huge thanks to Torsten Alex and Linda for answering some of our burning questions about materials analysis I'll link all of their profiles in the description and Alex was actually on this podcast before where we talked all about his company, Fluence Analytics. Check out season two, episode 17, and I'll link that in the description as well. Now, cue outro. Thanks for listening to Startup the Science. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast, head to berlin/startuptheScience. You can also follow us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to leave us a message or ask us or our guests any questions, send us a DM or leave us a message on our website. We would love to hear from you. Stay tuned for our next